Leaders across tech are convinced that diversity in the workplace, that big issue that you can't go anywhere right now without hearing about, will be a non-issue within five years. The problem? Very few, and I mean very, very few of them, are doing anything to make that prediction come true, according to a LinkedIn survey just released. Why is this true, and how do we change it? This is work in progress. Keeping an American business alive. It's just not as easy anymore. I watch too much go wrong. There are not a lot of choices. The harassment is just one manifestation of a pattern of behavior. There's opportunities here that yes. are untapped. You have to go get them. I'm just hoping that something will eventually crop up and get my life started. Welcome to Work in Progress, a LinkedIn podcast about the future of the world of work. I'm your host, Caroline Fairchild. And I'm Chip Cutter, talking to people across the country about work and what it means to earn a living right now. Chip, I think it goes without saying that this has been a pinnacle year for diversity and inclusion in the workplace. This seemingly all started back in February when the now famous ex-Uber engineer, Susan Fowler, outlined in a blog post her experience both with sexual harassment and abuse while working for the ride-hailing giant. That blog post ultimately led to one of the biggest culture scandals to come out of Silicon Valley to date and the dismissal of several Uber executives, including founder and CEO Travis Kalanick. And in the moment, especially in the beginning, that blog post from Susan didn't feel different from what we've heard from women in technology for years now. That it's a toxic place for many to work, especially at these companies that are still predominantly white, predominantly male, and some that still have this kind of bro culture that pervades them. But that blog post turned out to be a floodgate moment. After the allegations settled down from Uber, more started to come out at Google and at prominent startups like 500 Startups or Binary Capital and many more. And those allegations that you just referenced, they don't even get into what's going on right now in entertainment, with both actors and journalists being accused of abusing their power, as well as politics. We're seeing many cases of politicians being accused of abuse. All of the media coverage must be doing something to improve the workplace for women across these industries. Well, I think that's a fair assumption that there's certainly more awareness about this now. I think the question, though, is whether this actually does anything. Does it actually lead companies to change how they operate, to change how they treat women? Well, the results of a recent LinkedIn survey we conducted in November suggests that the media coverage is doing very little, at least within technology. We received more than 500 responses from startup investors and founders across industries and asked them to share their experiences on the shortage of diversity in both venture capital and startups. These respondents self-identified their gender and race and were asked at random to complete this survey. And what we found is that creating and investing in diverse teams remains a fringe issue for both investors and founders. When compared with other factors, less than 5% of investors surveyed by LinkedIn rated diversity as their top concern. And I think that's so surprising given everything that's going on right now. But if that's not bad enough, more than 70% of investors and founders say they've seen little to no change in how the industry treats discrimination and harassment over the past year. So 
if we go back to that earlier moment, that blog post from Susan Fowler, we thought it really would change things, and leaders in tech told us that it really hasn't. In talking with people across the country, both women and men, many say that they feel that the industries that have been exposed so far, we're talking about tech and entertainment and politics, they're all in the limelight. They're all kind of the sexy industries that we focus on. They worry, though, that other companies, maybe in industries that don't get as much attention, they worry what happens there. If you're at a company that may be small or may do something that's kind of out of the public view, are you going to see a change? Are you going to start to see bosses and managers treat women differently? They say that's where they feel the stops, that they don't feel this trickles down to their level. So what's really going on here? And how do we get the numbers moving in the right direction? We're going to ask the woman who in 2012 changed the dialogue on this issue with an essay she wrote for The Atlantic, boldly titled, Why Women Still Can't Have It All. Of course, I am talking about Anne-Marie Slaughter. She is the president and CEO of the New America Foundation and was previously the director of policy planning for the U.S. State Department. Anne-Marie, thank you so much for joining us and welcome to Work in Progress. I'm delighted to be here. So to start, I want to take a step back and talk with you about how loud the discussion has been this year about diversity, inclusion, and harassment in the workplace. There's been a lot published about how inhospitable the workplace is for a lot of American women. Is this the most vocal that you've seen our society become on this topic ever? Where are we with this issue? It is certainly the most vocal... I have seen it on sexual harassment issues. But I think in many ways, this conversation is the result of success, not failure. Because if you look at the reporting, and a lot of it has been done by the New York Times, uh, really deep investigative reporting, the reporters are not only women, but there are women on almost every team, and sometimes it's only women. And so part of what you're seeing here is we now have enough women in enough positions of power, be that in the media uh, or simply people who will listen to women and believe what they're saying to make this an issue. It's very hard for me to think that the old New York Times would have thought that this was front page news, but it is now. And that, again, is, a, is realizing who the audience is, but also who's writing and who's editing. Right. And you've written before about how things aren't really going to change until we have more women in positions of power. Speaking specifically to what's going on in tech, talk to us about how the lack of women in positions of power has fueled some of the culture issues that are coming out of that industry right now. <laughs> Where do I start? I mean, it's, you know, I think one thing to understand is how much of this is about culture. How it's exactly like in the old days where people would make a racist joke and nobody would think twice about it because it was something you might have grown up with or something you were socialized into. And it takes a very deliberate effort to change that culture, to say, actually, imagine what it feels like if you are the person uh, who is comes from a, a background or, or is a person of color, what that feels like. And the same is absolutely true around women even things like saying, you know, boy, she's really hot. I know plenty of men who wouldn't think twice about that, but what they're not understanding is that woman immediately thinks, 
I'm not being valued for my brain, but my body, I'm being diminished. You really need to actively engage people and teach them and establish norms and reinforce them. And that won't happen with one diversity training. That happens when there are people in power and they can be men as well as women, but honestly, you're gonna have women who are gonna raise it. to to get it done. And the other thing I'll say is it can't just be one woman. You have one woman in power, she's never going to be the one to raise this. Are you kidding? That means she's, you know, just like one African-American is not going to raise the race issues because then you become a Johnny One Note. Not even two women. I'd say you need three or more before you feel comfortable saying this has got to stop. And in the media right now, we have several dozen women across different industries saying that this is an issue, that it needs to stop. What in your mind does all this media coverage accomplish? Do you think it's going to change the way that leaders across industries feel about this issue just by reading about it in the New York Times or in other publications? Well, I do think that the combination of media coverage and the digital age makes people think because suddenly you can be recorded. There can be photographs. Anybody can do that. There can be emails that are leaked. So honestly, I think if all this had happened without that, no, I think a lot of people would think, yep, it's <laughs> it's a flap, it will blow over. But now if you're a leader, you're wondering, you know, what when is the next shoe gonna drop? Like who in your organization is a problem? And you're not thinking about that because your attitudes towards sexual harassment have changed. You're thinking about that because you now can get caught. So I do think that it will make a difference. I think though that it's not gonna change the fundamental power relationship. And to the extent that men get away with this because women don't report them and women don't report them because they know that no matter what management says, they're not going to be advanced in that in that uh, company as a result. And that will never be the reason. There'll be other reasons. Those power relationships are still there. And particularly the younger women, and you hear this, actresses saying, yeah, I wasn't going to report him. Or you know, younger people saying, hey, I'm not going to be the one to stop this guy because my career will also be on the line. And that's not going to change. So let's connect those power dynamics back to a recent LinkedIn survey of leaders in technology where we found that despite all this media coverage, majority are saying that they've seen little to no change in how people at their companies are treating both racial and gender discrimination and harassment. Why do you think that is? Is that a surprise to you? It's been a full year where this has dominated the headlines. And just last month, we're hearing from leaders saying, nope, everything's the same. Well, I, I don't know if you asked the question, of, the starting question of, do you think there are any problems with sexual or racial harassment? I guarantee you most of those people would say, nope, not at all, which is part of the problem, right? They are not conscious of what the experience actually is. And if that's right, then the fact that they're saying there's no change just means that, in fact, uh, they're not aware that there were problems uh, that are being redressed. Uh, But I think, again, there's a lot of healthy skepticism that media coverage can 
actually change attitudes uh, until people start start getting caught. One of the things we're hearing and talking to, to people across the country about this is they think that a real star system is at play, whether you're in tech or whether you're in another industry. Uh, Michelle Chafee, she's a, she spent 20 years in healthcare, for, starting as a respiratory therapist, and now she's running her own healthcare technology company. She said that in her 20 years in the workplace, she's experienced the most sexual harassment while working in healthcare, not other industries. Within the healthcare system for people, you know, that are that are working in there, um, you know, there's definitely a hierarchy. So, you know, specifically physicians have a position of power and influence. And so especially if, you know, the, the person doing the harassing is a physician, um, nobody wants to talk about it. And if you make a complaint to HR or to a supervisor, it's very often dealt with in, you know, kind of a peer um, review or, you know, peer-to-peer counseling situation or, you know, there's education provided that they need to go to to say, hey, here's why it's inappropriate, you know, to grab um, your coworkers. So what she's saying there is that sometimes it has happened for years where a star surgeon was well known in the community for harassing women or just having kind of outrageous behavior, but was able to get away with it. Do you think that we'll start to see this trickle down into industries beyond tech, media, entertainment? I think that we will start to see a change when and if the women in those industries are brave enough to come forward again with actual documentation. And because once that, I do think what has changed is if you come forward with emails or pictures uh, or recordings, then the CEO can no longer avoid it. And it's amazing to see how fast people are falling now. Matt Lauer uh, from NBC, you know, one credible claim and he is out. That would not have been true a year ago, I think. But again, the power dynamic's still there. So it takes a nurse... Uh, or a orderly or, you know, somebody on a hospital staff to do that. And that person knows that surgeon or that physician can really make life hard for them. I want to go back to what you said about this importance of women coming out and coming out in droves. You've written a lot about how a lot of the underlying issues that are fueling the sexual harassment aren't just women issues, but there are issues in the workplace in general, whether it's the lack of paternity leave or how women are treated when they get back to the workplace from maternity leave. Is sexual harassment just a women's issue? How do we frame this as not just something that impacts women, but impacts everyone in the workplace? I think that it impacts everyone in the sense that somebody who's a harasser is likely also to be a bully. I mean, Harvey Weinstein's the classic example. He was horrific to work with or for, and everybody knew that. And so the harassment is just one manifestation of a pattern of behavior that cannot be good for a workplace. And the example I think of, and I, we, we know this in uh, international relations, Domestic violence is often a marker for violence generally. In other words, when societies are coming apart, the first place you see it is people abuse their families, but they don't stop there. You know, that's a pattern of behavior. If you're willing to be violent, you're willing to be violent. So I think similarly here, you're talking about a culture in which 
some people are entitled and are allowed to get away with pretty much anything, including uh, groping, but probably also yelling and acting out in all sorts of ways uh, that affect the quality uh, of your workplace. I will say also, though, it does reflect a sense that women are still second-class citizens, and there I do think issues like making parental leave, thinking about flexible work for everyone, thinking about uh, career tracks that allow people to slow down and still speed up. If those are only for women, then women are taking them, then women are never in those power positions uh, that we need. So there, there is a larger culture issue there too. And all those policies that you just mentioned, they're very progressive policies, policies that you would think would be adopted in culture mass in places like, I don't know, Silicon Valley, one of the most (laughs) toited to be progressive places in the country. But here is one of the epicenters of this debate. What's missing? So I saw a great tweet recently that said, here in Silicon Valley, we celebrate the 80-hour week and the four-hour week, but anything in between is a life of quiet desperation. And I thought that nails it, right? Because a normal work week, a week work week that is still intense. Most of the people in Silicon Valley, most of the people in my life work hard, but they might work a 40 or 50 or even 55 hour week and still have time for their families or other things in their lives. So the idea that in Silicon Valley, it's one or the other, either, yeah, the four hour week and you've made your pile and you just invest versus this culture of more is better. You know, if 80 hours a week is good, then 100 hours a week is even better. And if you can get on a plane and cross time zones so you can extend your day, well, aren't you macho? And that is a culture that I understand you pull all-nighters to get a product shipped, that's great, but the idea that that's the way you should work regularly, that's applicable to college and, you know, post-college till you're 30. It's not how grown-ups live, but, you know, the culture was forged by essentially college kids and young men who are still effectively in their college years until they're in their early 30s. We interviewed Sarah Lacey of Pando recently, and she had some interesting remarks about how if it were the men that were having the children, our workplace would be set up very differently. Now think about for a minute if men gave birth. Do you know how much high-fiving would go on if a man had to push for five hours to get a baby out of him? Do you know like how many stations that would probably be telecast on? Like, do you know how much bragging there would be? There would be t-shirts, Mountain Dew would sponsor it. I mean, it would be an extreme sport. And yet, because it is the superhuman thing that seems almost impossible that only women can do, it's seen as a disability. Do you feel similarly? Do you think that if it was the men who had to have the children, we wouldn't be having some of the problems that we're having today in the workplace? Without any question, but it's such an odd counterfactual because if the men were having the children, the men would be different in so many ways. Uh, But yes, of course. And I do think you see things changing as men are much more active parents and realize, yes, I may need to come in late for that meeting, or, you know, we don't have to have eight o'clock meetings in the first place, or, hey, actually, if I work from home Monday and Friday, I can get a ton done on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. 
So no question, uh, it, when women do it, it is seen as uh, a way of being an inferior worker. When men do it, they're confident, as I am confident as a woman, that they can still do really great work and have a family too. In your famed essay in The Atlantic, Why Women Still Can't Have It All, you wrote that one of the challenges workers have is being on someone else's schedule when they're a new parent. And this is something I've heard in talking to people across the country. I spoke with someone, her name is Megan Bonenheimer. She lives in Albuquerque, New Mexico. She works at a heating uh, and cooling and plumbing company, one of the biggest in the area. It has about 500 employees. And she told me that this was the thing that mattered more to her than anything else. She has a child who's about a year and a half old. And she said that if there's one thing that she would want to change next year, it was this. To be honest, I think one small beginning change and this isn't just for women who have children, but like for me, having seen some of the disparity with maternity and paternity leave, I feel like that would be a small policy change to help women in the workplace. What she told me was that at her prior company, she was the first woman to have a child. There were no established policies on maternity care. And she said it ended up being one of the reasons she ended up leaving the company, just this feeling that she couldn't do her job and have a child at the same time. So are you optimistic that advances in tech and more ways for people to work remotely will help to change this? I am optimistic uh, for a number of different reasons. Uh, one, I think companies are beginning to understand that not having these policies means they lose valuable talent. And actually, uh, Megan's a perfect example of that. She left. Somebody trained her. Somebody invested in her. She was presumably good at her job, and she left. I have to say, at New America, where we have uh, three months uh, off, whether you're the mother or the father, and then we have three months where you're expected to negotiate with your manager to work flexibly because we expect that you're still investing a great deal of time in childcare. We have found that we are retaining some really spectacular people in their 30s. Second, I do think younger fathers are pushing. And again, in my experience, men who have working spouses are saying, hey, I need the same amount of time off as my spouse gets or as an, a woman gets in this organization. Anne-Marie, I want to go back to your response to Megan's quote about leaving her job because it wasn't a hospitable place for her to be. What if you're in an industry where you won't have a job, period, if you work with bad actors or people who have behaved inappropriately? According to our survey, one in four female founders have worked with VCs who have behaved inappropriately in the past and haven't get gotten caught. So that's 25% of female founders. They can't just pack up shop and say, well, I guess I'm not going to raise any venture capital for my startup. I guess I'll, I'll figure out another way. What are your options then when it's so rampant that you're forced to work with people sometimes who culturally you don't agree with? Well, again, I, this is why I think that this is a huge milestone in the fight for male-female equality, but I, I'm not sure. It, it's certainly not the end <laughs> of sexual harassment uh, and it may yet be a watershed, but we have to see the changes in behavior, not just the, the media and the firings. I think a certain number of women will continue to suck it up because that's what you got to do, uh, because ultimately the best revenge is to succeed uh, and then run your own company and do what you want. 
You also wrote in your now famed essay, Why Women Still Can't Have It All, that I realize that I am blessed to have been born in the late 1950s instead of the early 1930s as my mother was or the beginning of the 20th century as my grandmother was. Progress is being made slowly, but when are we going to get to a point where we're not looking backwards and gender just isn't an issue in the workforce anymore? I do see uh, a time where really women will be seen as every bit as talented as men, indeed often more talented in certain areas where we will have enough powerful women to make these changes and because better work will get done. But I have to say, it's not my son's generation yet. I think women uh, born in my, uh, my sons are 21 and 18. Uh, so there are even greater progress has been made there. But a number of those women are going to hit their 30s and have children and discover, uh-oh, the world had not changed as much as I thought. So it may be my grandchildren. But I do believe that we've made extraordinary progress and As long as we have the ideal of genuine male-female equality and the people with enough courage to call institutions and and bosses on it, that progress is not smooth. It's not always upward. There are backlashes, but I do believe we'll get there. We will get there probably with a few more backlashes between now and then. Anne-Marie, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a great conversation. That was Anne-Marie Slaughter talking to us about the state of diversity and inclusion, not just in technology, but across industries. Chip, one of the things that Anne-Marie brought up that we didn't actually bring up in our survey to VCs and founders is this idea of just how inhospitable it is to work in tech when you are a woman, if you're expected to work these crazy 80-hour work weeks. Yes, a few are working those four-hour weeks that Anne-Marie mentioned, but a majority are expected to work around the clock. And if you have a family at home, that's extremely challenging. And with women still doing a majority of the caregiving in our country, I don't know how you change that across an industry. No, you absolutely don't. It doesn't help anyone. I'm thinking back to the conversation we had a couple of episodes ago with the founders of Basecamp, who had found a way at their company to work 40 hours a week and nothing more. And they made the case to us that this hustle and grind lifestyle, this idea that you are only successful if you work 80 hours a week, they said it's ridiculous. It doesn't serve anyone. And so it doesn't matter if you have a family or if you don't. It just Those hours just aren't productive. But I think especially if you're trying to raise a child, it just really, really makes it difficult. And I think, again, is something that needs to be addressed. And that goes back to what Anne-Marie was saying about how we need to make these quote-unquote women's issues not women's issues, but workplace issues. I think that what we heard from her is that until we really think about how sexual harassment, how inhospitable workplaces impact both men and women, a lot of things aren't going to change. But the biggest takeaway I had in hearing from these women across the country was that there's at least this understanding that there's an awareness now. There's a pathway to report these issues, to kind of talk about behavior that just shouldn't be happening. Here's a technology executive who said she's optimistic about what she's seeing. I think this is what we're seeing right now is the tip of the iceberg. And as as women are, are seeing that their allegations are actually being heard and, and being addressed, I think more and more people will come out. How long will this last? I don't know. I'm just really um, actually feeling empowered. I feel, I, I think it's a positive thing. I think it's really encouraging to me knowing that people are finally starting to make their voices heard. And, and it, I don't want to say it amazes me, but when I read, um, Things that people say on social media, primarily from men, 
you know, about how they can't believe so-and-so did this or this person did this. And, and you know, the thing that I think about is, well, you're obviously not a woman. That's why you're not aware of it. So what she's saying is that women have been experiencing this for decades. Finally, there's a realization and men are starting to see this too. And so she's hopeful that this also causes men to change their behavior. I think the question is just how long does it take until we start to really see that change in mass? Of course, there are going to be more setbacks moving forward. But I think we're moving in the right direction and we just need more headlines to come out. Thank you for listening. If you like what you're hearing, please feel free to rate and review our show on iTunes and Google Play. It really helps get the word out. Also, we'd love for you to share your thoughts on the podcast and the issues that we've discussed on LinkedIn using hashtag work in progress. You can find me on LinkedIn at Caroline Fairchild and Twitter at CFair1. And to follow Chip Cutter, follow him on LinkedIn and Twitter as well at Chip Cutter. This week's show was produced by Florencia Ariando and David Pond. We'll see you again soon. <laughs>